welcome to this EG Cities live podcast, which is going to focus on Bristol. We're going to be discussing the aftermath of the vote earlier this year to abolish the city's mayor and asking how Bristol will fare under a new structure of government when Labour Mayor Marvin Rees reaches the end of his term of office in 2024. I'm joined by a fantastic panel of experts to explore what this all means for Bristol and for the real estate sector. With me are Jonathan Lambert, who is a director within the Bristol development team at Savills and head of its UK mixed use development group. And we have with us Christine Townsend, who was elected as a Green Party councillor in May 2021 for the Southville Ward in Bristol. She has more than 25 years experience in the education sector as a teacher, school governor and multi-academy trust chair. And she was chair of Bristol School Forum, a statutory body that focuses on school funding and sector suitability at the authority level. Christine is also a founding member of the charity Integrate UK, which promotes gender and racial equality through educational workshops. We're also joined by John Savage, Dr John Savage, a businessman and the executive chairman of Bristol Chamber of Commerce and Initiative. He's also the chair of the Western Harbour Advisory Group and managing director of Business West. John is no stranger to politics in the region, having stood as an independent candidate in the inaugural election for a West of England mayor in 2017, and as Labour's candidate for Avon and Somerset Police and Crime Commissioner in 2012. Well, I think we can all agree that we're meeting at a really fascinating time for Bristol as a city. Um, the backdrop of dwindling confidence in the UK government seems to point to an increasingly important role for local leaders to keep their cities on track, particularly if they're to remain attractive to global investors. In the case of Bristol, however, the electorate, albeit on a low turnout, has voted to remove the position of city mayor and instead to put in place a committee system whereby decisions will be ratified by groups of councillors rather than by a cabinet appointed by the mayor. As Bristol responds to the cost of living crisis, the climate change emergency and its ageing infrastructure, the city needs stable leadership to tackle these issues head on. So how will these structural changes play out? And more specifically for real estate, there are concerns that party politics will affect the planning decision making process, delaying activity for the whole industry. So let's start our discussion with the referendum on the role of mayor, which was held after Liberal Democrat councillors proposed a motion for the vote, seconded by the Greens and with 59% of people voting for the role to be scrapped and a turnout of 29%. So why did Bristol reach that point, having voted to bring in the role of city mayor back in 2012? Um, Christine, could I come to you first on that, having, having been very close to that, that whole process? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, it was the that was the first opportunity that the Bristol electorate had to uh, decide whether they wished to keep uh, the elected mayoral system. Um, and they decided that it wasn't for them at that particular point and that they chose the committee system instead. What I think is important is for uh, your listeners to recognise that the first elected mayor was independent, he wasn't attached to a political party and therefore the first iteration of a mayor in our city was very much a cross-party basis. Mm. 
he had uh, cabinet representatives from across the four parties and he therefore was an independent mayor. What the Labour mayor chose to do very, very quickly, having been elected on um, the kind of the premise that he was going to maintain this cross-party cabinet, was that what he actually did very quickly was replace the entirety of the cabinet with Labour councillors. And so what we saw for the last few years um, under this administration, under Marvin Rees, was a Labour um, exercised mayoral role and mayoral cabinet. And I think that from, from where I'm sat, that had a big impact on how people felt. And then in 2021, what we saw was the Greens get an equal number of councillors to the Labour Party. And it, from where we were sat, that that wasn't heard at the at the mayoral table and it's the concentration of power that that mayor chose to maintain that I think eventually meant that people said we don't want this system anymore you need to listen to how people have voted mm. that's that's my take on it yeah no that's that's really helpful thank you um John um do you could you give us your your take on it on how, yeah. how the situation evolved. Yes, indeed. And I'd just like to stress that there is no way that anything I say is now based upon party politics. I'm interested in politics as a, a man from a working class. So Labour was my natural home. Um, I'm a socialist by my religion and, and by my background, but nothing I say is biased. So I was interested in the prospect of having an elected mayor and I think that the first one did have that key advantage of being able to encompass the thoughts of all of the parties which I thought was important. I've not ever been personally very keen on individuals being in control so it's like a bit you know I'm a historian it's a bit like the Roman Empire you get one good Caesar and ten bad ones so it's just the nature of things. So I've never been with it, but I think it could have been made to work and it's worked elsewhere. Um, but it has become a little focused on one, one approach and I don't think that reflects the needs and the hopes of, of the general public in, in total. So I'm not that concerned about the change. I'm, I think Marvin has done the best that he could and he shown, is given an interesting angle on on singular leadership the fact is that whatever system you have it requires a leader of some kind or leaders and my most successful time with bristol was in the days when uh, it was solidly labor controlled and there was a, a leader of the party who was the leader of the council who'd been in position for a very long time now you can agree or disagree with his approach but bristol was in a bad way and they were prepared to take help from business so whether you have a, a committee system or not or some other system you always need a good leader somebody who can actually conduct the orchestra well rather than try to play all the instruments themselves so i'm and i look forward i look forward to change always i think we must help each other to make the best of whatever this proposition is which was voted for by the people so okay so we've got some two two different takes on it there it doesn't 
sound, John, that you were you're you're entirely convinced that it was working, has been working well, although you were sort of you wanted you were enthused by the the idea. Um, I think practically, 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 it has worked as well as any other system. Mm. Uh, it, could it have worked better? All systems could work better. Has it been? I mean, for other reasons, being a, an independent mayor doesn't win you all of the support of your own party. So there are always difficulties being the leader. So it's done some good things, but I am not perturbed particularly by the change. Mm. And I do believe in democracy. You know, uh, yeah. what, what I worry about is that, and these are normal things, that we should ensure that the general public who are voting are as well informed as they can be. Mm. And Christine, presumably you're, you're encouraged by this, this prospect from 2024 onwards that that um, councillors from other parties, including your own, will be able to have a greater role. For the same reason Bristol. that um, diversity on all boards lead to better decision making. Mm. Um, I mean, I think one of the main things that really stuck with the Bristolian population and the voters was the movement of the arena, the, re the arena decision that was Temple Meads that the mayor voted for himself. He was elected saying that that's where the arena was going to be. And then there was a complete turnaround on that. And I think that it, and I, I really don't think that people, that necessarily the, the voters remembered that, that. And the reason that he was able to make that decision is because of the nature of the mayoral system that Bristol chose to adopt. And it wasn't, and it was, and it's that choosing to maintain that level of um, decision making in one person's hand. Now that's a choice that that particular individual made. They don't need delegating those mayoral decisions was something that was open um, for that particular individual to do. He chose mm. not to do it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I think that has blown up in his face as an individual. Um, now how voters, whether voters realize um, that a different individual could have made different decisions and there could have been more delegation of those, uh, uh, those, you know, those decisions to a greater range of people. I'm not sure, but what they saw was one person say, actually, I've changed my mind. We're not having an arena now in Temple Meads. I'm going to, we're going to put it up, it's going to go up in South Gloucestershire and particularly for people in South Bristol. Um, and it, and it didn't make much sense actually to um, the people of particularly of South Bristol as to why it was moved. Um, and there were huge promises that came with that. And we'd had a number of years of a build up to that arena development and it's and it it's now been lost to Bristol. So yeah, that 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 was very people were very sore about that. Mm. Mm, that makes sense. Jonathan, I'd love to get your your take on that with your 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 development expertise and knowledge of that sector. Yeah, that well, 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 I think it, it, it's sort of linked a bit to what was said earlier by by John and Christine as well. But I think the, you know, the, there's never a perfect system. You know, we can debate mayors, we can debate committee systems. You know, in in the end, as as John said, there needs to be some leadership in this. And I think one of the problems from the development sector that we've seen, particularly over the last few years, I should say, was the latter end of the mayor discussion about the, before the vote, was that we've got two. And when you're talking to people from overseas or you're talking to um, institutions or people who are dealing nationally across the country, they get quite confused when they, they, they know about what Manchester does 
Andy Burnham's not the mayor of Manchester, it's Greater Manchester. You know, Andy Street is the combined authority across the Midlands. And then suddenly they come into Bristol and not many people when they come in, get they get automatically very confused by the fact that Bristol is effectively halfway down the M32 and around. All of the elements to do with Parkway and MOD and all of the big employers up there, Bilton, UE, are all in South Gloss. And there's a, there's a mind-boggling position. I mean, I even, even you know, I'm old enough to remember when I started my career about Avon. And I think that all through, you know, the last 25 years, there's always been this sort of debate. It's Avon, then it's four authorities, Weka, we've got a mayor, and then suddenly we've ended up in this situation where we've got two. And then many you mean that, that there's a West of England, West of England mayor? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, so then when you're in a room with investment and you're talking about development and investment into the city, all of the people that we're talking to, when they talk about the city, they're talking about Bristol outside of the core Bristol area and the wider area, you know, Cripps Causeway, all of that debate that we've always just had about retail, everything like that. They all see that as Bristol. And we sometimes, sort of despite ourselves, those that work and live here are all talking about constantly all of these little boundaries. And then, as Christine just said, then suddenly, you know, arenas go up there. It's still in Bristol. People outside of Bristol see it goes in Bristol, but they understand the context. So when it comes to the mayor, it's always been then quietly confusing from the outside world as to who, who are we talking about today? Mm. And, I, and I'm not saying that that's a reason why the general public voted for it or not, because Christine and John will probably be a bit more closer to that than I will be. But from the development industry, if that's the, the question, you know, I think that the, the, the 10 English cities that you say had a vote on it, there should be some high profile mayors, the ones I've mentioned, and then you've now got a situation where towards the end, you've ended up with another one coming in. And it's definitely been... A confusion in that. I'm not saying that that's a reason why it's voted for, but from the outside in, I think people just want clarity. Mm. So that decision that that um, that we've had this earlier this year, then to 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 get rid of the role in of, of a mayor in Bristol itself, is actually could be quite helpful from from a perspective of investment. It leads on it leads on to the point that you mentioned around yeah, how does that relate to a committee system and how does that relate to having a single party. And and or a single mayor making decisions, and as Christine said, you know, there's going to be a democratic position for, for some of these. The biggest problem that people are seeing from the outside, there's never one one perfect solution to this. The mayor is never going to be perfect. Committee system never be perfect. The biggest issue from the outside on Bristol at the moment, and some of it is local issues, but some of it's the national point. Is just genuine you know, consistency of message and resourcing. And if you're investing and you've got planning and you've got all of these processes to go through, it's how quickly you can get through that or how much clarity and consistency of message feeds back relates to um, your view on whether you're going to invest or not. Mm. So that, that is more of a, a wider development position about Bristol and as, in, as it's in terms of the uncertainty is never good. So we don't know what the committee system is going to be like. We, we all have examples of it elsewhere in the country. Yeah, people just want to know, OK, fine, whatever it is, how's it going to work? Mm. Yeah, Christine, could we come to you on, on that? That would be great to get your take on how how you think it, it it will work. And, you know, is there, I guess, the obvious sort of 
concern is is that there could be end up being you know going from having one person having perhaps too much um, control to there then being too many sort of voices involved and you know could that delay decision making or how you know how how do you think it it or how do you hope it will work? Um, well, I think that there will inevitably be some decisions that will take longer, but I think the decisions in the end will be they will take more of the residents with them. Mm. because the, they will take more of the elected representatives with them because they because they've been involved in the decision um so in the end i think it they will be it will be it will be better decision making certainly from a residents perspective um from an out from a kind of developer decision planning is not part of what it is that we do necessarily as a council the idea of planning is that it's non-party political, it's national framework. That's 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 how it is now. That won't change. So if there is there are messages coming from developers that somehow there's going to there is or there might be party political elements in that, then something's going wrong in the, wrong within the planning framework and the way in which it's being delivered in Bristol. And because the committee system or any other system should not change that. I mean, I don't sit on planning, but I do sit on licensing and that's quasi judicial in the same way. When I go into a licensing hearing, I don't go in as a Green, I don't go in as a Green Party councillor. I go in as a rep as an elected representative of the people of Bristol to apply the frame, the legislative framework around licensing and to listen to both sides of the argument and come to a calculated evidence based decision. Uh, and the same is is should be the case in planning, um, whether that is the case or whether it's not, I'm you know, we can have kind of discussions and debates around that. Mm. Uh, but I do agree that the idea because actually Bristol's got three mayors because you've also got a Lord Mayor. Now, we might know that that's the kind of, you know, they put on a they put on fancy dress and go and open supermarkets or something. We might know that. But if you don't understand the system in necessarily in the city of Bristol, mm. you might also get confused with that person because that person also does sit at full council and chairs those full council meetings. So we've actually got three, which makes it even more difficult. Removing the role of elected mayor in Bristol actually makes it makes Bristol become a lot more aligned with the other three local authority areas that are on our borders because they are part of that. You know, they're they're best. I think, to my knowledge, they're cabinet sort of led systems, but the committee system is much closer to that rather than one person that has the overall kind of mayoral role and then appoints whoever it is that they wish for that um, to take on those particular roles. Yeah, so that could be a benefit in how Bristol interacts with those yes. neighbours. Yeah, 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 because there will be, it will be a lot more cross-party, which is what the other three local authorities are as well, um, as opposed to one, per, what is now one person from a particular political party rubbing up against political parties that are not aligned to that to that individual's party because mm. labor because labor is the is is the red in the middle of the blue where we are geographically that's that, yeah. that's the reality of of what of where bristol is john what do you think from a sort of business perspective could 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 this having having more parties involved in decision making um could could that be good for business then what what are your sort of members 
feeling? I, I think, you know, some of us have been around for a long time. And remember that when we had Avon, Bristol was just a district council. There were six district councils and Avon. And one of the great confusions in everybody's minds, and certainly amongst business people, because we were not, 40 years ago, we were not well acquainted with the, the, the way local authorities work. The difference, the clear statutory difference between the responsibilities of a county and the districts was not really generally understood. And I think that's still the case with having a, a sub-regional mayor and remember the mayor the sub-region does not include the four key local authorities it's only three of them that again is another confusion so there are still limitations uh, to understanding but um as a businessman obviously i mean i have to say i must believe i'm required and do believe the fact that without without good economic development and growth i mean sustainable of course without it uh, there is nothing and, and so the challenge for business always is to is to do, do our best to produce more and particularly more more wealth more jobs and everything else now we're not all angels but quite a lot of us are on the side of the angels so i welcome the chance to approach the problem better but if we do not have considered and careful development the place will decline. Now, for me, the greater Bristol area, Bristol in the centre, artificially contained by a city boundary, has the greatest potential for UK PLC outside of London. It always has had. There are some pretty basic reasons for that, but it does. And we perform at probably 40% uh, that territory in terms of GDP of the best cities in, in Europe. They are German, mostly at the top is, is uh, Frankfurt. We perform at 40% of that. We could perform much better. We could, we could take investment, make it work, uh, and, and provide principally for the people that live here and come here a better life, but also for UK PLC. And the, and the worry for me is that the artificial boundary of the split doesn't help us at all. We're only in the whole territory, we're only 1.2 million souls. Uh, Bristol is the sort of 12th city. If we were, I won't earn any friends on this, but if we were a single unitary city area, that would be, we would probably be the eighth or seventh city in the country, which would, which would actually genuflect to the reality of our importance as a community. So, you know, the important thing is that we need to do things, we need to develop things, but we must all bear in mind, whether we're politicians or religious or whatever else, the real product of this has got to be the improvement of life for individuals, those people who vote for their futures and their grandchildren's futures. So, but without investment, without growth in business, and I know that this cuts across quite a lot of people's thinking, I understand that, but in my world, you either grow or you decline. There is no steady stasis in the middle, but controlled growth, bridled growth is vital. And getting that growth uh, is important. When we set about with the city council to convince investors that we could rebuild Broadmead, <laughs> we set up a, a, a company, everything I did, I asked that it be done through companies, limited by county, councillors sat as directors, we set out to do it. It took 20 years from coming together and saying, yeah, we've got a common purpose here, let's do it. We can't have the city centre destroyed. It took 20 years for the first spade to be stuck in the ground. These things essentially take a long time. Mm. And whilst you're waiting, a lot of money gets wasted. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jonathan, what would, would 
thought there about Broadmead. What's what's next on the agenda for for, for Bristol going forward? Sort of under, uh, once this new system is in place, this new new sort of structure. What what are going to be some of the key um, developments and projects that it, it that will be looked at? Sort of thinking well, think, uh, twenty four. Yeah, I think that the, the, at the moment that is the key area of Bristol um, mm -hmm. for investment um, and change. I think. Yeah, we, we've probably gone away from a position, yeah, what's Cabot Circus now, 14 years old, mm -hmm. sort of conceived correctly at the time. But at that time, we were starting to see the, the, the shopping centre and that retail market, um, not declining, but starting to change and evolve. So we've always gone into a sort of 15, 20 year process of trying to battle, you know, sequential tests out of town versus in town. You know, it goes back to that whole discussion we've argued about, uh, not argued about, probably agreed about, about the, the South Lost position with Cribs Causeway expanding. And it's always been a, you know, out of town, in town, and it's obviously weakened Bristol's positions for it to be then a South Lost v Bristol issue as well. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of local authorities will always have a, a Bristol, you know, a, a, will always have a position where they're just battling within themselves, the out of town strategy and the in town strategy. So I think that. Leading up and before the pandemic, we were obviously um, seeing declines in, in, in retail space, changes in online shopping, too much retail. We can talk about percentages you know, to some extent to the cows go home. But then COVID has accelerated that from a, um, in, a, in, a in a macro way, which you know, to some extent, some people may see as an opportunity. But I think where you get to is that in a post-COVID world, things have changed. They were changing anyway. Mm. They've changed very quickly, and now what you've seen um, during that period has been development proposals coming forward, but also businesses closing. So you've, you you haven't. It's not about trying to retain some of those businesses. You've got people like Debenhams who have who have closed. So we now have a big building in the middle of Broadmead, which is empty. Mm. And that's not necessarily a developer point or a council point. It's the fact that that business has ceased to exist. So, you know, when you look at the 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 the, the post-war development of, of, of Broadmead and the fact that it's not the best environment and it hasn't been for a, a number of years, it, it has no very limited residential, very limited office space, very limited other space other than retail at the moment in terms of the whole Broadmead area, and it's been cut off by roads, not very well linked into surrounding areas. What you're now seeing is is that there is going to be wholesale repurposing slash redevelopment. So most of the space in that area is being looked at by developers to try and bring vibrancy back to Broadmead and to fundamentally change it. Not not mm. not not a not a um a sticking plaster but fundamental because I think that is the one place where we could drive sustainable residential locations, more offices, more growth, um, because it's a brownfield site mm. and there's the opportunity. Mm. Um, and just thinking about sort of business sectors, you mentioned offices um, uh, there within Broadmead, or not enough office space, and um, the the supply of of new office space um, coming through for Bristol just isn't enough, is it, at the moment? To to certainly not to satisfy the sort of short term demand that I think the city's seeing. So which which are the which are the real sort of growth? sectors and and how 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 is the city sort of responding to to that um well, Johnston, think, perhaps start with we, that. yeah i think the, you've seen in the past um, few weeks 
sort of statistics out where um, rental growth has been quite strong in that sector. Um, we're now on a par, sometimes exceeding some of the other cities. So mm. John, in terms of our position, it's quite good. Our connectivity to London is excellent. I think Bristol benefits from that attractiveness as a place to live. So you've seen a lot of businesses, a lot of people change their locations or where they live or where they work doing that, that concept. Before, before COVID, we did lose a lot of space to PD. So we must have lost a million square feet plus, which meant that we were actually short of office space before the pandemic. There's obviously a bit of a worry during that period because you had a lot of people working from home. But what has happened is, is that businesses have now wanted for numerous reasons, you know, downsizing, but moving to better play, better space so that they can encourage people back to the office. And that's in terms of the environment they're in, but also from the sustainability perspective, they want to be in a new greener building and not in an older building. So you're seeing that that is to some extent tenant driven, but also developer driven. Now, a lot of that is a slight cultural shift between it just being, oh no, it's another cost is actually something that attracts interest and it's the right thing to do for, in terms of the long term from an investment perspective but also an environmental social and governance perspective so in terms of that you know the tech sector has taken off dramatically within bristol so we're seeing quite a lot of growth in that element and obviously within that sector they will go for different types of space as well um, which is beneficial we're also seeing you know, businesses move into bristol but also reconfirm their status in Bristol and, and, and downsize and move around um, and, 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 and almost cement their um, position in that city in terms of their long-term position. What we're not doing is, is delivering enough land or opportunity. It's great that you can see quite a lot of cranes going up at the moment and deliveries mm -hmm. coming, coming forward over the next couple of years, but that is the next wave that needs to make sure that that, maintain, that momentum is maintained, particularly given the fact that at that point we'll have Temple Meads, the university, and all of yeah. that is supposed to you know, um, increase Bristol status nationally, internationally, and with that bringing, bringing development. Yeah, you sound sort of optimistic. <laughs> no, we're very, I mean, we're, 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 we're very optimistic. It's still, even in this market at the moment, which has taken a bit of a wobble over the past few yeah. weeks, we're still seeing yeah, very yeah. good tenant demand, but yeah. About the issue, it's a macro issue as opposed to the bill costs, yeah. planning, speed, certainty, competition. You know, in the end, you can see buildings are going up. But I think one of the statistics is quite strong for Bristol is every time a building has commenced, lettings have taken place. So of the buildings you're seeing going up, you're not going to have many buildings that are actually, when they're completed, going to have much availability. So what that means is, is you need some more to be delivered to keep up with that demand. Mm. Yeah. And are, are you seeing sort of new entrants coming in in to, to, to deliver on that? Or is it is it the sort of the established players in the market? What's sort of happening on that front? Well, I think um, to some extent it does. It, in part, it relates to what type of players, you know, investment funds, pension funds, developers. But the, the council play a big role in this um, in terms of not just its planning function, which, as, as Christine alluded to earlier, they're, they're, they're set policies and principles that relate to national policy, but the council has a huge land holding in the middle of the city. Um, and therefore it doesn't just control or have an influence in planning decisions and policy. It has an influence in, in its land position. Mm -hmm. so, um, whilst neither can fetter the other, 
it comes down to resource, vision, etc., to make sure that the council are making decisions on that from a planning policy perspective, but also as landowner. Mm. So that goes back to the point about leadership, about policy, consistency across that in terms of how that all fits together to encourage those investors or developers, new entrants, old, who's going to invest in Bristol and how that relates to the pipeline and the speed at which these things can be progressed. Mm. Christine, let's let's bring you in there then on the on the sort of on the council's role as a as a as a, a landowner then what do, what do you hope to see um from the coming from that sort of going going forwards what what would you like to see the council doing with that role i'm aware that the, that the council is a principal landowner in and around um the kind of central area i suppose in the river area um which includes broadmead um but also other parts of the city center uh what would be considered to be the city center um the council need to be bringing forward mixed use and mixed development. What we need to do is use the amount of travel that people need to be doing in and out of Bristol. It's a huge problem. Um, <laughs> people feeling that they want to live outside of the city and then work right in the centre. Um, and that causes big, big travel and um, kind of transport problems around the city. But we also need infrastructure around how we put communities together. There are huge um, issues at the moment around people accessing just primary health care, for example. <laughs> the biggest pushback we're going to get from our residents is, yes, we understand we need housing. Yes, of course, we need industrial use, be that sort of low level industrial use and put some of the more higher level industrial stuff on the outer edges of the city. Um, however, we need school places. We need health centres, we need dentists and we need GPs. So and that is also something that the council has to be have bearing in mind when they when they're looking, for example, in my ward to if everything goes through that is currently on the table and currently in the pipeline, we will increase my the, the residency occupancy of my ward by 50 percent. Now, that's huge in terms of managing that the sheer size of that community and how that fits together and how those people um, bond together as a community and where they where they are for accessing those services and that infrastructure and that is an element that I am concerned about mm -hmm. and I understand that Jonathan is not that's not necessarily an area that um, he is in control of and neither are we this is something that the health service and the CCG um, needs to kind of come on board with and it's a lot more complicated I recognise than what's going on at a local level but that in itself is really problematic. Mm -hmm. There was an article literally this week saying there's not any GPs at the moment taking on new patients in the city there's not one GP or what not one GP practice that's really problematic if um, we're looking to develop whether those are offices or whether those are residents as well. But I agree with Jonathan, we need mixed use in those brownfield sites on council land and we need affordable housing. And that's another element of what, uh, you know, the council will be bringing forward as the landowners. Mm. Yeah, so balancing that sort of that that um, acute shortage of housing with a lack of lack of resources on the for, for basic 
services is yeah it's a huge huge challenge going forward um and um, John, just thinking about your sort of um, your um, knowledge of the of the business sector, which which um, areas do you see sort of expanding going forward? And we've heard a bit about tech and um, other areas. What do what, what what do you think the growth? Where do you think the growth is going to come from for for Bristol's sort of economy going forwards? I mean, of course, high tech. I, I hope that we can hang on to the aerospace and aeronautical stuff we're in danger of losing it from time to mm. time we 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 sit there wondering what are the things we don't yet know about that will come and they'll come down the <laughs> the rail as fast as you can and are we going to be ready for it but mm. things connected with with uh saving the planet absolutely essential considerations for all of us uh what, what are the what are the businesses that are going to be involved with that there has to be business you've got to create the wealth mm. to do the things that you need to do and, and uh, so, you know, we're trying to uh, understand from the existing businesses what is, there's a massive shortage of staff. That's always been the case, actually. You know, I was the chairman of the Learning and Skills Council for 10 years. The mass, always a shortage of talent. And yet uh, we've made no progress in that. When you ask businesses what they want, I think the really key, the really geared up businesses know what their future needs are. If you're planning to build a plane that's going to last for 50 odd years, you know what they are. But many businesses, particularly small ones that are in the incubation stage, they don't really know what they want. And so getting people to understand that they've got to look into the future themselves. And I have to say, just the point about um, missing health services and everything else. I mean, it is beyond crassness, isn't it, that we allowed ourselves, we allow ourselves over the years since the war to look at building things without considering the holistic requirements yeah. so it's like building a bloody bus and only putting two of the wheels on it you know i mean we had as an example bradley stoke the biggest private sector uh, estate built up in post-war uk it took 20 odd years to get a new school and i can tell you in every place in every village around bristol i live in a village around bristol but i think it's bristol in every place there are no dentists there are no doctors you can't get you can't get the basics. Now, why does anybody want to live somewhere where they can't get the things they need? Mm. And I think that we have to, between authorities and business and others, we need to identify common purpose and make sure that we're making enough noise to make sure that when we build the things that will make money, we put support into those things for the people that are going to be in them. Mm. You think, does the business sector sort of understand that then, yes. really? Yeah. I mean, we have this group called the Bristol Initiative. We started it after the rioting in Toxteth in Bristol. There are about 150 people. Their job is to make money. There's nothing wrong with that, but they are absolutely people who are dedicated to the concept that this is about community and place and the place going on together. And we know very well now, particularly now, that without people, you've got nothing. Without business, you've got nothing, but you're going to have people in them. Mm -hmm. I'm the chairman, amongst other things, with the city council on our, our destination organization tourism and whatever every single member of that that organization cannot get the staff to serve mm -hmm. at serve at the bar be waitresses be waiters whatever and so the productivity of those places and the enjoyment of them is is reduced dramatically so you know we, we what is missing is the expect the expectation on local authorities is quite unreal 
local authorities, in my view, after looking at it for 36 years, the local authorities are definitely not supported by Westminster and Whitehall. They really are not. They, they sit in a world that is made difficult for them. And they can't do everything we want them to do. But what we've tried to do over time is bring our resource to help. And we have helped a bit, not as much as I'd have liked we have. But my God, anything we build now has got to have that holistic view. Jonathan, I can see you're you're keen to come in there. Is that do you think developers are are, are on board with that, recognizing that? I mean, there's there's limits to what they can do too, isn't there? Um, yes, I agree. And like John said, you know, developers are there. They have to make money. There's risk associated to it. So I'm not I'm not going to talk about that too much. I think one of the issues is when it comes down to what we discussed at the start of this podcast about the joined up nature of Bristol and there being slight um, issues associated with infrastructure, as Christine said, you know, we've got the issue of people live outside, work in, some people work in, have to go out. There's lots of movement that goes around and none of that's coherent. It's the same with the development world, whereas I think most uh, developers, particularly with the fact that they're, that they're measured now and want to be measured on things other than, other than money and finance and ESGs, some of the time there is a willingness to do it, but can can that actual development deliver everything so sometimes there needs to be a, a view working with the council or and, and other stakeholders and other bodies that this site in particular the key priority is this mm. or these mm. items because there's there's a where there is blockage and where there is um bad relations and things go wrong and things drag out is that there's a there's a clarity of we can't have it there needs to be sometimes a view of you can't have everything which is the priority for this site in this area it might be affordable housing it might be public realm it might be linkage it might be a doctor surgery and therefore as long as that is done in the right way acknowledging that developers have to take risks as long as as long as developers make a profit and you have to go through the planning policy basis sometimes things can't fit everything in and there needs to be a uh, there needs to be a better debate about in that particular area, in that particular site, in that particular red line, what is the key priority, which goes back to the linkage with the local community and everything else. Because sometimes policy can be too generic, and it doesn't actually mean that what's required on this site is exactly the same as what you require up the road. And I think that's that 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 debate doesn't really happen. It's always a case of we want everything, and then there's a perception of we're not going to provide anything. And then nothing ever happens or it goes through a long protracted um, process. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's that's a narrative that other other cities will relate to you as well. And, and do you think, Christine, that um, better consultation, which you, you sort of alluded to earlier, would that, could that help with that? I mean, I guess it would help to identify what people's priorities are and what their, their um, biggest I mean, concerns I, are. I I mean, I can only speak since I've been elected in 21, but what I would say about the development that I've, that I've had, you know, quite close contact with is that those developers that have done the consultation actually bring people with them. Mm. It's, but, I, but I mean, it might be that it was COVID or whatever, but there have been developments that have been brought forward whereby not only have I as, a, as, a, as the elected representative taken umbrage with it, because they've, I've had no, they've had literally made no contact with me or my fellow ward councillor, but there has been very little consultation with the people living in and around that area as to what they want. Having said that, I can tell you what's needed in my ward. 
I know what's needed in my ward. We know what's needed across our city. We have, you know, we have needs analysis. We do surveys on an annual basis. We know what it is that people want in different areas. That's not something that is unknown. Um, however, it really does make a difference when those that are wanting to do the development come and actually speak to the people that will have that will be directly impacted by it face to face and give them those opportunities. And generally, it probably won't be a huge number percentage of the people living in that area that actually come along. But being given the opportunity to do that has a massive impact on how people feel towards those developers, because there are there are there are those that would say they're only in it for the money, Jonathan, you know, you know, you know that this is the case. Um, and there are some developers that I've had conversations with where that is definitely not the case. However, you know, that's a sl sliding scale, shall we say. Mm. Um, and some of those developers have made mistakes and they and there's a couple that continue to make mistakes um, when it comes to making sure that they're consulting properly. Uh, but generally, we know we know what people need. We know what we, we know how many school places we need. We know that we need more GPs in our area. We know what the waiting lists are to get an NHS dentist. So it's not that these things aren't needed. And if that it comes forward as part of the plans, then a lot of the ob the objections and a lot of the reasons why people might get upset about different pieces of land being developed, they fall away. Yeah, that that's really interesting. So, so then you think perhaps that that COVID has um, played some part in shifting that kind of dynamic in those conversations. And I mean, I think it's for some for some it said we couldn't do it because of COVID. For others, they found that the shift online actually has enabled them to engage in a very different way, uh, in a way that you wouldn't. That is that is. I mean, it's become the norm now for people to do a much more much more co communication online. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, I don't think that that's not going to change, is it? So mm -hmm. having different opportunities and different ways in which people can engage with things that might be happening really quite close to, uh, you know, their doorstep or huge developments like Broadmead or, or around the Cumberland Basin, you know, big, big developments that will have massive impacts about how people feel across the city. The mm -hmm. residents across the city um then yeah i mean that th those opportunities to engage in different ways are very good and online engagement is a way to enable people to do that however the face there is no there, there will never be any substitute for face to face mm. that just will not it's just just because we're human beings aren't we <laughs> you know yeah, no, we, we, we've covered a huge amount of ground already. Just just to round off with, um, could we just think about what Bristol needs from the real estate sector? And Christine sort of touched on that really, really well already. But I wanted to ask you, sorry, to keep, keep the spotlight on you, but um, I just wanted to get your input on how Bristol is cutting carbon emissions. And, and, and are you encouraged by how the real estate sector is engaging with that? in the city um i can so from the from the things that i've seen there are some there there is there's some development towards that is what mm -hmm. i would say um we've got the district heat network that is going into in and along our ward and those developers are wanting to um kind of 
lock into that if they're able to and then if they're not on that network as those plans um, look at the moment they're hoping that maybe the next in the next tranche or the third tranche of developing that network they you know they'll be able to come online and so they're looking down the track at how okay if this if this is happening in 10 years how might how might we then change our energy supply and kind of hook our hook our development into that form of um, uh, more sustainable um, energy. Uh, the one area I feel is it's it's been left out is the retrofitting element, and this goes oh, back to the skills. Yeah. This goes yeah. back to the skills development, um, and what we're doing for our workers and our workforce already in living in, and working in our city. And as um, industries change um, and have to shift. How is it that we're enabling our workers to be retrained into that area? Mm. Because that's going to have a big that that is a big part of, of Bristol's kind of carbon footprint. And then the traffic, which the private car use, which is just it doesn't appear that anybody at a political level has yet to be able to kind of crack that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only getting worse. Mm. It appears it's only getting worse. And the bus system is in turmoil at the moment um, because of all the kind of the, the relatively recent issues that have happened around um, the cost of living that has had impact, huge impact on buses. Um, however, what we you know, need much more infrastructure around sustainable transport um, from a carbon perspective, but also from a public health perspective um, and, a, and a kind of uh, just livable uh, being able to live within a city because people want to live outside of the city for a number of reasons but including uh, green spaces clean air those mm. kinds of elements and if we can bring that back into our city and that means getting rid of cars that means getting rid getting the private cars off the road but that's a whole shift in mentality and a whole societal um, kind of mindset that needs to be shifted but that but that you know there are there are elements of our community that have made that shift okay so some some encouraging signs but yeah yes. a long way to go partic particularly on transport um yeah. and john if we think about um bristol status nationally and internationally um how how can real estate help bristol in positioning itself competitively um against not only other cities in the uk but also internationally what what role do you think real estate could could um have in in that well, well if it plays its part in understanding the peculiar nature of the place. I mean, some places are very similar, but Bristol is quite different, not least in its tendency to be very liberal over hundreds of years, so that we get it right. Wherever we get it right, people like to come here. And we are peculiarly positioned. I mean, I, you know, one of my businesses was a transport business. The thing that amazed me about Bristol was we were one day's lorry journey there and back, which is a vital ingredient in GDP from 50 million people. So Bristol's peculiar position is really quite interesting and people want to come here. And Jonathan's already said, and others have said, it's a great place to live. You know, it's surrounded by wonderful countryside and, and stuff. And it is, you know, we, we've got to make the best of it. But I think we've got to do it together rather than in competition. Mm. And, 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 you know, the realization that 
business works when it's actually making a profit. You know, there are some businesses that make what look like obscene profits, but most of them don't, and their profits end up in people's pensions. <laughs> really. Uh, not all of them, and, and part of our role in Business West is to get businesses to understand better that we've got to sell ourselves better. People don't trust us, and that's not fair, but we haven't told our story well enough. Mm. And there are a lot of ordinary folk who've suffered badly from the machinations of business. We are dedicated to changing that. Mm. But, but we sit on a place that is a pile of gold. We just need to polish it up together. Oh, I love, love that idea. Pile, pile of gold. Jonathan, final word from, from you. What, do, what impact do you see real estate having uh, in Bristol going, going forward as it navigates through these, these various challenges? Um, lots of, well, lots of positive. When you mentioned about its perception nationally and internationally, mm, um, yeah. as John has said just a minute ago, it's, it's perceived to be a great place to live. Um, Christina said about that in terms of the, the, the city centre, suburbs, its surrounding area. But when you see people who visit here from an investment perspective, both abroad but also from London or other cities, they've got the problem in getting here on the M32, for example, because of the traffic. They then arrive at Temple Meads, surrounded by development sites. You know, used to have the old post office depot, terrible entrance to the city. Nice station, but look what I'm arriving to. This place that I keep hearing about that's got the brilliant GDP contribution to the UK, great place to live. And I arrive and this is what I come to. When you go to places like Birmingham, Manchester, who've invested in their entrance points, which shows from a real estate perspective that they're open for business and they're doing things. And as John mentioned earlier, therefore capturing people's imagination. Now, it's great that we've got investment going into Temple Meads. It's great that we've got the university. All of that is moving forward. You know, I'm not qualified and I'm equally aghast with Christine about the transport position because everything seems to be in 20 years or 30 years and there's no real plan for the next five years of what we can actually achieve on that. But from, a, from an entrance perspective, Bristol has got a long way to go that when you actually think about its success, Broadmead, its shopping core, is pretty poor. The environment's pretty poor. The entrance to Bristol in terms of Temple Meads is pretty poor. There are things going to happen, but we need to get those things delivered in the short term, because otherwise it's going to fall further and further behind in terms of perception, whilst being successful despite itself. That's an, that's an excellent summing up. Thank you. It's certainly a, a pile of gold, but but with lots of challenges that need need addressing and 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 resolving going forwards. Um, I'm afraid that is all we've got time for. Um, so thank you all for your time today, and thank you to everyone uh, listening. And if you'd like to see more of our cities coverage, the latest edition of our UK Cities Investor Guide is now available to download online. Thank you. Thank you.